Hello, and welcome to Psychotherapy with Dr. Afia. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the relationship between our hair, our health, and our heritage. As a clinical psychologist, hairstylist, and research scientist, I believe that we can do so many different research studies on this topic. So for my first season, I'm facilitating conversations with my co-authors on our research study, and I'd love to invite you to listen in as we explore the research topic, why it is important to us, and even some common myths about our work. In this episode of Psychotherapy with Dr. Fia, my special guest is Ms. Ingrid Penelope Wilson, and she and I will process our recently published article in Women, Gender, and Families of Color entitled, White Folks Ain't Got Hair Like Us. African-American mother-daughter hair stories and racial socialization. To introduce you to the article, I'll share some of the abstract. Limited research studies focus on the memories that shape African-American mother-daughter bonds and racial socialization, informed by Marva Lewis's hair combing interaction paradigm that emphasizes the role of hair in African-American mother-daughter relationships. This study analyzes qualitative data from 13 African-American female college students to explore mother-daughter dynamics, race, and hair. Multiple experiential themes emerge in the data, recognizing differences in hair texture, making doll choices, and daughters requesting permission from mothers to alter their hair chemically. Participants identified being between the ages of 4 and 14 years old during the experiences, and they expressed a range of feelings that centered on sadness, anger, and confusion. The findings address an indisputable void in understanding the internalized stories about hair that shape African-American racial identity and racial socialization. Wow. That's wild. We did that, right? We did that. So this is published. Of course, I'm happy to have one of the co-authors. Another co-author is at Tulane University, but the co-author that's here with me today is Ms. Ingrid Penelope Wilson. She's a first-year graduate student pursuing a degree in clinical rehabilitation and mental health counseling from the University of the District of Columbia. Go Firebirds. Yes. <laughs> and Ms. Wilson is a member of the Psychotherapy Research Lab, and her research examines the hair combing rituals of mother-daughter diets and how this serves as an opportunity for mothers to strengthen their daughter's racial and social identity. With more than 20 years of experience in operational management, Ms. Wilson currently serves as the special assistant to the deputy mayor for planning and economic development for the government of the District of Columbia. A native New Yorker, of Ecuadorian descent. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband. Thank you so much for inviting me to your space today. And so, Ingrid, can you please tell me how you began your journey of focusing on mother-daughter relationships and research? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Dr. Voshaka. As I always say, you're my research mother. (laughs) And um, I definitely wouldn't have been able to navigate a lot of what I have in this space without you. So thank you so much for that. Um, I think it all started for me with um, understanding that I was going to become a clinical psychologist um, (laughs) after you called me Dr. Wilson. And then... (laughs) I knew um, research was important. You always told us research is important. So I'm like, oh, what do I want to research, you know? And I always thought about teen pregnancy. And a lot of my friends were teen moms. And so their daughters becoming teen moms. And how do we break cycles? Or what is it that 
that makes that happen. And so we discussed the psychotherapy model and theory, and um, we started talking about empathy. And a lot of what I wanted to talk about research was empathy. And then I was like, well, moms, you know, moms are hairdressers too. And how does that play into it? And um, how do we start? What is the mother feeling? And what is she transferring? What energy is she transferring into the child when she's doing the daughter's hair? And um, that's how it all began. And a lot of uh, notes and uh, <laughs> brainstorming sessions and rewrites. And later, we got into this particular space. Yeah, this this is a long-term relationship in terms of yeah. research. So even going back to 2016, 2015, even 15, in yeah. the beginning of our relationship. Yeah. And even thinking about your relationship. So your mother lives with you part-time now. Well, like full-time. Okay, full-time. <laughs> all right. Well, isn't it really hard to live with your mother as a grown woman? It all depends on who you ask. Because for <laughs> me, it's not. I mean... She she started living with us at a time we lost my dad, mm. um, and she was really not feeling comfortable at home. And she was she changed her apartment. She was in the same building, but it wasn't the same. And then one time I had just gone back to school, and that's when I had met you. And I was <laughs> starting my research, and I would I was working full time. I was going to school at night on Saturdays, and I was a newlywed. And so <laughs> wow, <laughs> um, you know, as a Latina mom, she's like, "When are you taking care of your husband?" You know. And now, like, the guilt is setting in. Like, oh, my goodness. I'm a horrible wife. I'm a horrible wife. But um, she said, you know, I want to come and I want to help you. I want to stay with you during the semester. And, you know, I'll help, you know, clean and cook. And I was like, oh, okay. Not a problem, Mom. You know? And, it, you know, it's been... She came in at a time where I, too, was doing a lot of self-exploration. I had just gone back to school. I was 44 at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, I want to be a therapist. I just knew I wanted to be a therapist. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I wanted, that, that, <laughs> I knew I just had to get my bachelor's and, and take it from there. And um, I felt like I needed, I learned from mentors that a lot of self-exploration had to happen, especially when I wanted to go into research, right? So she's now here in my home. And... It's making it's allowing me to see a lot of me, right? Mm. And it's allowing me to see, okay, Ingrid, what like your actions are based on what? Is it based on how you've been socialized, or is it because Ingrid Penelope Wilson Reels has decided that this is how she's going to make this action, you know, take this action? And it was also challenging because, you know, my mom is the matriarch of our family. Mm-hmm. She was the one that came to America from Ecuador, and um, she was she had a sixth grade education, wow. and she decided, you know, my father was well educated from a well off family. Um, but she was the one, she had a trade. She was, you know, a seamstress. Mm. And so she decided, I'm going to America. I'm taking my, my family. And she actually had to make a decision to leave my, my brothers, who mm. were at that time kids, um, five, six, and seven. Which I know now, like, was such a difficult situation for her because those were her children, you know. And her sis- her eight sisters, she had raised her sister. She's the oldest one. So she left her kids to come to America with my father to for a better life. And so I'm learning all of these things while she's living with me. And my husband is a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. So he's always interviewing her and asking her <laughs> questions. And 
you know, when you're growing up, at least in my household, you don't question anything. You know, you're just living and you're growing up and you're figuring out, you know, you're not really allowed to question anything. Why this? Why, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And for sure, I learned that I was sheltered because I've learned so much that occurred in my family that I never knew about. Mm. And so here I am learning more about my mother. Right. And my mom, um, you know, she would say things like, um, you know, you should tell Timothy, who's my husband, you know, to pick up his socks. You know, <laughs> and I already went through Not a sock war, like the socks, you know. <laughs> and I would say to her mom, you know, like, I understand your frustration, but because you're cleaning and, and you're doing things and he doesn't clean, like, he doesn't pick up after, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you, you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, but that also showed me, like, sometimes how I would be with him. Like, okay, wow, like. You've turned I, into I, your mother. I've turned into your mother. <laughs> I turned into my mother. So I think because I was open at that moment to really to the self-exploration that was happening within me Mm. uh, personally, because my husband and I are so different and he really encourages me and to dig deep and and to fulfill what my purpose is. And um, and because, you know, with her, I'm seeing this image that I know is the foundation of who I am. Right. Um, but how it affects me being that way that everything has to be perfect, you know, like mm-hmm. nothing is good, you know, and even within myself, my own expectations and the expectations I set for myself, you know, why didn't I get an A, you know, mm-hmm. like all these things and how to prepare for certain, you know, events that may come with, that you're not expecting, like graduating. But, you know, um, <laughs> It was really allowed me to see a different perspective, you know, of my own life. Wow. It's almost like you're, I was outside the, the mo- like the movie, like the screen, and I'm seeing this, and I, you know, and I appreciated that. And that really, really helped me grow. And because my mother's 87, it really she helped looks me. Good. Yeah, she <laughs> goes up and down those steps better than I can. Like, I'm like, I'm, you know, I really, and, you know, I really, it really prepared me. I have such an attachment with my mom. Like, I, I have a real strong attachment and bond with her. But I really feel like our, friend, our friendship and our relationship has transitioned into a grown woman, the daughter that's now a grown woman, wow. you know, mm-hmm. a married woman that manages her marriage the way she does with her husband not you know it may be different than how my mom does it or did it right because they were in a different situation but that her accepting you know that it's different and it's okay for us to be different and to have different views and it's been something my husband's you know he's always the mediator but he's there's been some discussions strong discussions about you know my mom understanding like some dissonance that you know I can have my opinion Mm. And I'm not going against you, mom. I'm mm-hmm. not going against you. You know, and a lot of those the conversations had had to be me just articulating in a way that she doesn't feel defensive, that she doesn't become defensive. Because the first thing is my love for her, mm-hmm. you know, my love for her, but also an acceptance of who I am. Like I want her to accept who I am and be proud of that, you know? And so it's been a lot of, you know, can it be true what you feel, mom? But can this also be true what I'm saying? And just because what I'm saying is true doesn't mean that what you're feeling is different, you know? And so there's been a lot of that. So in this case, in my particular case, I feel, I mean, you know, I feel that it's been an advantage and I really feel that it's been, you know, heaven sent because I needed this. 
I needed this. I certainly mm. needed it. Yeah, this sounds healing. Yeah. Um, to think about all of us to some degree have internalized the voices of our mothers, whether it's a positive, negative, in between, that we've really internalized it. But thinking about the opportunity then as an adult to get some family secrets, yeah. to really see the relationship playing out in adulthood is a really valuable opportunity to have a greater self-understanding since our mothers really set the tone yeah. for our identity and even some of our emotional insecurities or stressors. Certainly. I think one of the strongest things also um, is my connection to my lineage. Mm-hmm. You know, questions that I've asked about my grandparents and my ancestors that I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have never thought of asking. It's, it's crazy, right? Because I'm older and I'm, you know, I, I know now, I know now, but I was never socialized like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and life has, has changed for me a lot, right? Yeah. But with the stability of the relationship I have with my husband and to see, you know, the questions he asks and the purpose he has, right? Because at one point we're going to be parents, mm-hmm. you know, and he's got it on his, you know, history and he's going to socialize <laughs> the children and his, but what about mine? You know, our Latino culture, you know, understanding, you know, our indigenous roots, you know, yeah. understanding um, how it was that my maternal grandmother was indigenous and my, mm-hmm. you know, a maternal grandfather wasn't. He was, you know, mm-hmm. from the Spaniards. And so how was that played out in, you know, the 1800s, early wow. 1900s, you know? Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a history. And so I've learned a lot about that and I learned a lot about my mother and how much she's endured mm-hmm. and kept to herself. Mm-hmm. And that I think even for her, it's, you know, cathartic like just being able to let it all out and speak about it and be good and i'd be recording all of these things you know although she gets mad because you know she's like oh don't put me on facebook if i don't have lipstick on or something like that you know like or tag me she's like tag me yes she wants to look good so i'm just even thinking about the things you were sharing about family stories and really documenting the family experience but i'm mindful too that there are a lot of conflicts sometimes between mothers and daughters um what do you feel like are the most common reasons then for mothers and daughters to have conflict and why do you think some women disconnect emotionally from their mothers so I think there comes a time um as the the girls the young girls are starting to grow and I don't think that the research shows right the research shows that as girls start to grow up they seek you know their peers validation and they start seeking their independence and the mothers start thinking oh my god my daughter's growing up you know oh my god my daughter so there's these two themes these two theories of preparation and uh, protection right that the mother takes on um preparation in the sense of trying to give her ideas and understand you know okay these things are going to happen to you like when they start getting their period or they start maturing going through puberty and all of these things so they want to prepare them for these things and then also knowing that they're going to go into these relationships with new friends they start going into junior high school right it's a little different now you want to do yeah (laughs) awkward you want to do your hair different you know depending on the parental style of their peers some may have a little more freedom than the other and so the protection sets in, right? The mother's like, okay, I know that my daughter's going to start having these types of friends. And, and especially for, you know, African-American, Latino um, moms and relationships where race is a dominant factor, right, in our communities, in their socialization, 
it's even scarier because they've experienced it. Mm-hmm. They know what it is, you know. And, and again, depending on the spaces, you know, gentrification is something that's happening a lot throughout cities. And so now you're seeing, you know, a lot of diversity in a lot of schools where there wasn't before. And so what does that mean? Because you're you're going to school with kids that you haven't been with before, different socioeconomic um, statuses. So they they're wondering, you know, the, the, the mother's like, how can I prepare my child as best? But the child is always going to feel they know best, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the mother-daughter relationship and bonding and attachment comes in, right? So how what type of relationship does the mother have with the daughter? That when Turnage 2004 says this, she says, you know, depending on how the mother and the daughter in pre-adolescence, you know, attach and bond, that really is going to help the daughter set a foundation of how she feels secure that she can succeed in any atmosphere, in any environment, right? Or her self-efficacy being strengthened. And so they, a lot of independence, a lot of wanting to be with friends, a lot of like uh, strong foundations, you know, all of that matters when this time of puberty comes through. And, um, and children just, you know, really having access to a lot more information, more technology. And so that all, all those become factors and variables into that relationship. Okay, you just broke it down. Wow. It's so many layers to this yeah. dynamic. And it sounds like you're really saying early childhood and adolescence are so critical then in determining Absolutely. that relationship in adulthood that Absolutely. a lot of women have with their mothers. If I can just add, I think also um, for the mothers, right, it's going back to the point of is Ingrid making this this decision based on what Ingrid has decided she's going to do or is it based on how I was socialized and I don't even realize that I'm taking these internalized emotions with me and passing them on, you know, to my children. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that, right? And, and there's a lot that can occur for the mother, a lot of enlightening that can occur for the mother in the in this time as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so it has a bi-directional aspect Absolutely. to it, too. Absolutely. Okay, well, now you have me curious about something else. Um, since our research focuses on using hair as an entry point into mental health, how did you and your family and your friends process and think about the role of mothers in the hair care process or thinking about emotional roles, especially of motherhood in the hair care process. So I have to tell you the day that, you know, we came up with, okay, so you're going to, when after all our, you know, brainstorming sessions and all the big post-it notes all over your office and (laughs) trying to figure out what is it that I want to research. Um, I kept remembering one of my family members, right? She had beautiful hair, still does. And she always had the, 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 the right ponytails, you know, the, the, the part was perfect, you know. And even as I tell this story, it's just crazy how I, I had long, beautiful, you know, dark hair when I was younger, right? Down to my back, pin straight. And I didn't think about my hair at that time. But what I did know was that I would see her hair as beautiful, right? And so that's what I'm saying right now. I'm like, my hair was beautiful too, you know, but I didn't feel that way because I felt hers was even more beautiful. But um, I thought about her, but I also thought about how her mom used to do her hair and how she used to cry. Mm. And I also knew what her mom was going through at that time. Like now I know we were kids, but now I know what her mom was going through. And I kept thinking like, wow, like that is definitely, you know, her 
you know, mental state where she was and it was, you know, being transferred to the child and it wasn't the child's fault, you know. And um, although, you know, tenderheadedness is a real thing, we know it's a real thing. Um, it was for her too. And, it, you know, her hair would be pulled and she would be crying. She would always cry. And although it looked beautiful, I think the experience was horrible, you know. Oh. And so I thought about me. So when I was about seven years old, we moved to Puerto Rico. And again, I had my long hair. You know, it's hot and it's humid. <laughs> and I, in that hair, I caught lice. I got oh. lice. My mom was, we were at my brother's baseball game. And I was, I, I was on her, she was in, we were in the, uh, the benches. And she was one above me. And she saw something. She just like put her hand, she <laughs> dug, dug into my scalp. And I'm like, oh my God. And she takes out this little animal, right? Oh. And she's like, oh my God. She's like, you tienes piojo. And I, and I was like, oh my God. I didn't even know what lice was, to be honest. I just saw animals in my hair. And she was like, venga acá, mijita, venga acá. Come over here, my little girl. So she put me on her lap. I was laying on her lap. And throughout the whole game, as we watched my brother play baseball, she pulled out all these <laughs> little animals and the eggs. You know the eggs? And then you could hear her put it like click, click like that. And my hair was so long. But I remember how loving she was, you know, and I remember my experience and I I have it was just two totally different experiences, you know, and where now I'm like, she felt bad that I had lice, you know, mm. that it was her responsibility for me not to have lice, you know. Um, of course, my hair was cut. They put this like, you know, medicine in my <laughs> hair that messed up my hair completely. Um, but the action and, and the emotion that these actions came from were of love. And that is all I experienced from my mother, you know, mm. love. And and that's when I was starting. So with my friends, you know, my, my girlfriends were Puerto Rican, you know, they had beautiful curly hair. And now I'm like 15, 14. My aunt's a hairdresser. So they're always perming my hair to make it <laughs> curly. And I'm like, it's like frizzy and cut. And I just, it was hard. It was a horrible I'm experience. I'm picturing it was the 80s, right? It was the 80s. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm, I was trying to look cute, you know. And it was, it was it was never what I wanted it to be. It was never, it was always an experiment, you know, and of course I didn't think about it like that then, but I would always wonder, oh my God, they have, they can have, wear it straight, they can wear it with a curl, they could wear it curly, but my girlfriends were always like straightening their hair, their moms were always blowing their hair, you know, the Dominican curls, you know, that was <laughs> going on, and I would always wonder, you know, why can't I do my hair like that? And my hair was like that naturally. Mm -hmm. And so all of those experiences uh, just came to mind, you know, as we were entering into that research. And I think it really allowed me as we went into the stories, like I could really relate to many of the experiences of my friends, of my cousins, you know, of my family members, of mine, and, and really believe and, and, and know that these observations that we're having are real and they're relevant. They're mm. so relevant and how they shaped so many of of our identities, you know, especially our racial identities and who we are and and um, and experiences that, you know, we've had to, to go through. Mm. Well, you certainly have a wealth of stories related to hair and especially the experiences of getting your hair groomed. I'm just picturing the salon um, from your aunt yeah. and these different uh, 
friendships where hair was a factor, especially when we were teenagers. I know I have a lot of stories myself, but we're also introducing and extending Dr. Marva Lewis's work on hair combing interaction. Mm -hmm. So can you tell our listeners what is hair combing interaction and why was it important to you that we study it? So Dr. Lewis, I absolutely love her. I feel like she's our... uh, Biologic, well, my, my, not, my, not biological, but my um, <laughs> research grandmother in some sense, uh, paternal, because, yes. you know, maternal, I have another one, Dr. Winston. So, um, shout out to Howard yes, University, Dr. Out. Cynthia Winston Proctor. Yes, who is your research mom. My research mom. mom. So, therefore, she's my research grandma. Uh, I'm going to call her research me mom. Because okay. she's, in, yeah. Okay. So, okay. All right. So, um, I remember when we decided, you said, I want you to go and pull this, read this article, right? And so I was like, oh, and it was from 1999, right? And there was not a a lot of recent research on this. And I I read and I was like, oh my God. First I felt like, oh my God, I have an observation. You know, my data, (laughs) my observation is aborted. You know, how to, so I... I really felt good about that, you know, because I was in, I was a baby in my infancy of, of research, which I kind of still feel like I am. But you said get in contact, see if you can get in contact with her. And you, and I was like, oh, get in contact, like she's an author, like how am I? <laughs> and because I've worked in publicity before and things like, I know it's not easy to go directly to the source, right? You have to go through the manager and the agent and the this, and so that's how I saw it in my head, right? So you went to class. And I went ahead and I emailed her. And 10 minutes later, she responded. So I looked her up. She was a professor. She's a professor at um, Tulane University. Um, And I emailed her and she responded right away. And we put a conference call together and we started working together. And I was just amazed. And I feel so honored. And I'm so appreciative of you. Of Just like, go. Just go, you know. And so... Her her paradigm, um, which is um, the hair interaction, uh, hair combing interactions, has to do. Um, she too had an observation, right? So she says, "Okay, I'm going to videotape all these moms and all these daughters having these interactions. I just want to see how they get their hair done, right?" And they start working on that, and they start, you know, filming, and then she starts just really analyzing the data, and she realizes that there's different types of moms. Right. And a lot of how the mom is shaped, the type of mom that is shaped is based after interviews is based on how they were raised and Mm -hmm. the interactions that they remember from their mothers. And so she she talks a lot about, you know, mothers who are just who remember bonding times with their mothers. So the child's grandmothers. Right. And that's exactly how they're working with their daughters. Right. How they place them in their lap and how they're really combing their hair softly or they're having stories, you know, and just different aspects of the actual interaction where they are. You know, it, it all depends. You know, are you. Do you get to pick the barrettes that you're going to put on your hair, you know, or is it just a task? You know, is the mother just doing the hair because she has to do it, right? Or is the mother not doesn't know how to do it, so she's allowing somebody else to get their hair done, right? So these memories in the child's mind is now like, oh, my auntie, you know, 
uh, Marie because she used to do my hair and I used to love how she used to comb, like things like that. They were really correlated and it, they correlated with Ainsworth's um, theory of attachment, right? Where these bonds are happening in childhood, you know, in infancy and pre-adolescence. And so it really is an opportunity for the mother. It's not only a task, right? But she even says it in her theory. Hair combing interaction may symbolize parental acceptance or rejection, security, shame, or pride and family secrets, as well as a racial identity for which hair has long been a symbol, right? So... In our culture, in, in the African-American, Latino culture, I'm going to say Latino because I have experience, mm-hmm. right? The data we study is predominantly African-American. But this is not just a task, right? This is, this is, an, this is an, an, um, an episode, a memory that's being ingrained in the girls' in, you know, memory and shaping their racial identity, shaping how they're going to interact with other people when they have these experiences. Because the research does show that during pre-adolescence, girls will have race experiences having to do with hair. Okay, so how do they feel about themselves when this happens? And so this is this is why, and this is again like we were saying, oh, mothers are hairdressers too. And what's happening with the mom? You know, what is the mom in an abusive relationship? Mm. You know, again, yeah. my memory, right? Is a mom or is the mom, you know, is she well? Is she have is this is this a moment of bonding between, you know, of the mother and the daughter? And so I certainly think that because this is something that happens, right? Because the research also shows how hair is an important aesthetic, right, for the woman, for the African American woman um and you in the latino culture as well that okay this is not just something that is a task this is actually something that's part of the culture this is a variable in this socialization of race and gender so how are the mothers aware Mm. are the mothers aware because we think about healing we think about socialization we think about emotions as you know Therapy, psychology, you know, and we never think about it as psychotherapy, right? But then you think about, okay, the mothers are talking to the hairdressers like you, you know, your theory states and asserts that this is happening, you know, hair, and everybody can relate to it. Yeah, I tell my hairdresser everything, you know, if there's a bond, I'm, I've been with my hairdresser for 20, 30 years, and now my daughter is going to the same hairdresser. Or the hairdresser's daughter is now a hairdresser, and now they're forming a a bond, right? And so all of these things just continued in my head as, okay, you know what? Dr. Lewis had something here, and we're gonna, and with psychotherapy and Dr. Lewis, we're gonna take this to the next level. We're going to really try and help mothers understand how, in your everyday routine, the strong, the strong role that you play in strengthening your daughter's identity, and even for caregivers, because anyone can do it, right? But the majority are, are mothers, but. And, and, and a bonus that the mother learns about themselves as well, right? That the mother gets socialized again. Ashe. Is that counter-socialization? <laughs> there are a variety of emerging methods to investigate the topic of mother-daughter relationships. And so we chose to do a qualitative approach mm-hmm. using existing stories from my dissertation in 2010. Looking at all the stories that we were able to compile, how did you develop codes for the stories? So first of all, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, know, I know you said to me, um, I want you to take this data and I want you to analyze it. 
And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I had a participant number and a story. And I, that you know, I have to say that that's when I was thankful about the experience. I had the operational experience because it came to play. And just how my brain works, I looked at the big picture and then I said, okay, how can I like bring it in, right? And so... The, the data you gave me was a subset of a larger um, data set of an 80, right, of 80 um, African-American students. Um, and it was part of your dissertation, right? So you were familiar with the data. And I, too, was very interested in the data. And so what I did is I just read every single one. Now, the data that we took, let, let me take a step back, because the data that we took um, was part of the Guided Race Autobiography, the GRA, um, that uh, its birthday was in 2008, right? And so in this, uh, this, this um, measure, they had to obtain race narratives um, of autobiographical memories, and in that, uh, there was episode prompts, right? So now the, the participant has to go in and give the, their memories on, on a couple of autobiographical memories having to do with race. And so it's like race earliest memory, race childhood event, race adolescent event, and a couple of others like race peak experience, race um, turning point. And so all of these prompts had to do um, that we were at you, the, you, the primary investigator, were asking the participants for self-defining moments that shape personality and racial identity development. And so I believe that what you did is you took an excerpt of that, of where hair was part of these memories. And so uh, that came up to 13 participants. And so I started reading all of this data. I said, okay, well, let me do what I do best and just <laughs> charts, right? So I went into Excel and what I, really what I did because I knew we were trying to figure out, okay, how do they feel, right? That's what I knew. How did they feel on, regarding this experience? So I started just writing down, okay, any feeling that, that they had and, you know, um, what I know are now called emotional tones, you know? <laughs> and so... <laughs> That's what I did. So I took it. I, I, I took all the data. I read the, the the experiences, the narratives, and I started writing down what they were and explaining to you. And then the the coincidental thing is that I was not aware that these that because again I didn't know about research. I you know I took a stats class right, but and experimental, but I really didn't know about much about research, which a lot of these themes and emotional tones had already been analyzed through the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the lab that actually worked with you, right? Mm -hmm. The coders. Mm -hmm. So they had been coded already. So my coding wasn't really, uh, my coding was from a different perspective, right? Yes. Because now we're dealing with hair and, and I'm looking for other things. And so how did this make you feel and et cetera, et cetera. So there was a, a variable introduced, right, into, into this particular um, coding. And so we looked at emotional tones like sad, happy, angry. They varied. Um, actually, you know, there was negative tones and there was positive tones and um, 
there was t- when when did these experiences happen? You know, did they happen? You know, in pre adolescence, in earliest memories, were they the lowest moments? You know, and so all of that data really allowed us to see pictures and um, understand what these young girls were going through. And now, mind you, these are college students narrating experiences of when they were young. They were pre adolescent and adolescent, you know, young girls, and so. That really started shaping a lot of how we were going to tell their stories or narrate their stories and and, and look and analyze at this data, trying to understand, we know how you felt, but are you also telling us why you felt that way? Mm. And that was part of it um, as well. So that's how we came up with the the three main themes of recognizing difference in hair texture, making doll choices, and requesting permission from mothers to alter their daughter's hair because this is a lot of what was going on. You know, these were three mm-hmm. main, like, they, their experiences were having to do with these three main themes during these three main times. So that's, mm. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, you definitely did. It sounds like you really found the emotional overlap as well as the thematic overlap. Yeah. That in these 13 different experiences of mothers and hair, there still were top concepts that were reviewed by all the participants. So that's really interesting that there were a lot of things in common, even though each thing was unique. So I'm even curious then when we think about these 13 different stories about hair and mothers from African-American women's perspectives, can you give us an example of some of the stories that really stood out to you? Sure. Uh, They all stood out to me, to be honest, because the observation that we had was being supported in every story. Mm. There was a reason why the young girls were feeling the way they were feeling, whether it was positive or negative, or it was just a neutral, you know, emotion, which also went back to what um, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Lewis's research on whether, you know, did the mother have a good experience with their, with the mother who was the grandmother? Did the mother, you know, it was a, a bonding moment. Was it, you know, was it just a task that we're just, she was just doing her hair and sending her off. So it really, it all started coming full circle because I'd also done so much literature review, you know, Dr. Bulashaka, you love the literature review, but I was all, it, it was my first experience, so I was reading it all, and not only on hair, but racial socialization, you know, um, racial identity, what does that mean, why is it relevant, you know, why, and, and I started really to question, why isn't there a lot of research on this? Interesting. Why point. isn't culture, uh, which is a question, of course, you know, in, in, in the field, culture a variable in, you know, ther- in, in psychology, it, it's necessary, you know, especially for the black community, for the Latino community, immigrant population, you know, um, African-American, you know, communities that are not, that don't find ties into their ancestors. And what does that mean for them? Mm-hmm. And so all of these, and, and just learning from you, um, all of these these emotions and all of this de- data that we were receiving, tying it in with everything that I had learned so far. Mm-hmm. And it was just an enlightening moment. <laughs> and it was an empowering moment as mm-hmm. well. Because that's when I really started to to believe that in my heart, I'm a researcher. Mm. That's really when I started to to really cement inside of me that what you were telling me, <laughs> you know, what you were encouraging me um, 
to do to to do this research you know that that we have a responsibility you know um was where i needed to go and where i needed to be and you know just needed someone to to help me to guide me in that space mm-hmm. because it's all based on fear right that's what it was for me and so yeah so i it just all came full circle yeah, it's interesting as I ask about some of the participant stories, it even invokes your story and experiences too. Yeah. Um, I know that part of this work was related to your senior thesis while a student at the University of the District of Columbia undergraduate psychology program. And you started a lot of the writing with stories of the participants. Can you give us a little okay, hint yes, of what yes. some of those no, stories no, no. are? Yes, absolutely. And I'm sorry I went on a tangent over there. It's something else. Passion. But no. <laughs> passion, passion, passion. But, um, I'm, yeah, I want to, particularly Vicky. Hmm. Vicky was the first one I wrote. That's where I was going with my story. Vicky was the first one I wrote. And it was... And Vicky isn't really her name. We don't yeah, use a we're real so, participant's name. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, Vicky was a happy... Ha- you know, the, the narrative is happy. I can feel her being happy. You know, she was a young girl. Um, and she was invited to a party, a, a little girl's party. And what they were going to do at the party was they were going to do their hair. And so they were asked, you know, to come with um, supply like brushes and barrettes to play with each other's hair, right? But Vicky's mom had braided her hair, put her hair in place and said she couldn't, you know, put it down. And Vicky was sad. You know, Vicky was really sad when she went to this to the um, party because she couldn't play and she couldn't understand why she couldn't let her hair down. And so I interpreted Vicky to be, be before the experience sassy and happy and then after the experience she started to question herself you know and I wondered how did this experience shape her self-identity because did she she was she mentioned how she felt her hair was kinky and you know um she wanted to, to brush it and brush it until it became straight like her friends who were mainly all white right so it's a different experience and when she came home that's why her mom explained to her you know that her hair texture was different um and that's why she couldn't let her hair down but I wondered, you know, what, how she felt. She said she felt sad um, because her hair was kinky and greasy and stiff. And she said she really wanted to, um, she wishes she would have been taught to honor her curls because that's what she had, right? Now that she's older, she's saying the story because they also talked about how they felt about the experience. Um, and she was saying, you know, I wish I would have just been taught to embrace my curls because I would have felt different. And I, I thought about it and and I said to myself you know the mom probably didn't know that this is what she was experiencing right but it also went and talked to the point that we're trying to make here that this is an opportunity for moms or caregivers to strengthen the daughter's racial socialization um I think I also you know Sheila Sheila talks about her granny you know (laughs) um Sheila is um her cousin's mixed or even white, um, very different from her. You know, she has uh, American, Native American, she has black, um, but her granny really early helped her understand who she was because in pictures, what, seeing pictures, 
she always always saw the difference. And so in her story, she talks about how she felt strong, like she knew who she was. Mm. You know, she felt she you could tell she had a strong racial identity. You can tell, you know, that although she was mixed, she was okay with being this and that, you know, these different diverse cultures that she embraced all of them, right? And she even talked about it like as an adult, like she was giving her current experience. She was saying, you know, when I fill out applications, I, you know, uh, select other because that's what I am. I'm not one thing. I'm mm-hmm. many. And this has helped her, you know, just be strong and just, you know, and that's again, you know, supporting our data of if the child is socialized early and you're taught that, you know, your phenotypic expression, the this color of your skin, you know, your hair, the curl in your hair is beautiful, you know, then when they have these experiences, they're not feeling inferior. Mm. To them, it will be like, yes, this is who I am. And, you know, and even an opportunity to educate, you know, um, just there's there's a story that I'm really. um, And I'll tell you who it is. I believe it was Melissa. So Melissa talks about how she was in a store with her mom. Right. And they were just talking about dresses. There was a white lady in the store. They were talking about dresses and little girls, apparel, etc. And suddenly the conversation turned into hair. And the mother asked if Melissa's hair had been relaxed. And she noticed, and she was nine, she was 11 years old. 11 years old. And as an 11-year-old, she understood this. And she said that her mom looked at the lady and she was so upset that she would think that her hair was relaxed that she wouldn't think that her daughter could possibly have such beautiful hair or you know this type of hair you know um and that this lady would think that her hair wasn't beautiful because it was you know she thought it had to be relaxed or you know some that it had to be chemically enhanced and melissa said that she her mom just took a breath and she said, no, it's not relaxed. And she just educated her, and they kept it moving. So she said that when she was in school, she would receive the same experience. She would have the same experiences. And she said that, you know, I cough it up to people's you know, ignorance and not knowing that, you know, yeah, I'm black, but I can have this, this type of hair, too. It doesn't mean that the other hair is. I, I just have different, we have different types of hair. It's diverse. And that she takes the opportunity to educate as well. And so I... I, it just really, you know, was clarifying to me, you know, how in these moments sometimes of where, where the mom was feeling a bit confused about why would you think my daughter is wouldn't have beautiful, you know, this type of hair or that it had to be chemically enhanced. You would try and think it's a bad thing, you know. And so with Melissa, I, it really hit me because I just saw how her as a young girl, how impressionable that reaction of her mother's was. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it sounds like in that moment, Melissa really used her mother to guide how she should emotionally respond to this woman speaking about her hair. For sure. We also have Nicole. Um, Nicole was, you know, I, I saw a very, I felt sad when I read Nicole because I felt that, um, she was trying to fit in. She was really trying to fit in. And, you know, her mother um, 
was trying, you can tell with the story that her mother was trying to go to work and survive. And, you know, she did her hair outside of school and she went in, you know, she tried to do her hair in, in the car and she just, it was really tough for her when she went in because everybody started making fun of her. And she really didn't understand why people were making fun of her and the rejection she felt. But when she was older and her story as she was older, she really talked about how her mom did the best she could. And she believed that, you know, um, and her own impression like she doesn't feel that way anymore. But there was almost like that mother daughter bond that you saw, um, even though her mom was tra- having a difficult time. Um, she it didn't affect her. It didn't affect it. Actually, she was empathetic to that situation and so I that that one was was uh again they were all they all touched (laughs) me but there were some that I certainly felt you know it's almost like the emotion was coming out through the narrative and I felt that well these stories are so rich and meaningful um and so now that these patterns were found in these stories what are some of your recommendations to mothers when it comes to hair combing interaction so I think one of the things that Dr. Lewis um, talked about that I want I'd like to mention was, you know, with the data that she she um, obtained, she created a program called Touch, Talk, and Listen while um, combing hair, and it has to do with reuniting parents and children who were separated um, through incarcer- incarceration and children that are in the foster care system, and taking the opportunity, you know, that these hair combing interactions can actually um, be an opportunity, that we have data to support that they're an opportunity to create bonds, right, Um, with mothers and daughters and caregivers and daughters to racially um, socialize the children for strong identities, racial identities. Um, I would, you know, I would really try and and um, which I hope this 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 article does and, and your work and the work of um, of Dr. Lewis to really see beyond the task to really you know and 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 there's some self introspection that's required here as well right to see how can you help your child your daughter feel beautiful you know and and that it, and have these experiences having to do with hair to be enjoyable and and to be moments where they learn about how beautiful they are how the color of their skin is so beautiful and and to never feel you know or, or when people try to make them feel inferior because of this euro standard of beauty that there is that they have that they've been strengthened that they've been socialized to say you know, you have your opinion, but I'm beautiful. You ain't got to think I'm beautiful, but I know I'm beautiful. My mama thinks I'm beautiful. Everybody thinks I'm beautiful. And that's more than enough for me. And also the bonds, right? The, the, beyond the bonds, because like we, we talked about the research, daughters need that. Daughters need to know that they have security within their mothers, right? That that they can do anything if they have that security of going to talk to them if anything is happening during these moments where they really start changing, where they're really the separation, the independence starts to come in. I would say to the to the mothers to view this hair combing um, activities, their time with their daughters while they're doing hair, that it's a rite of passage moment. It's really to impart, you know, so much experience that they've had 
um, onto their children, um, even adjust their views on the, on how they experienced with their parent, with their caregiver, with their mother, and be very conscious of how they're doing this for their daughter. Also, um, the an opportunity to strengthen the daughter's view of herself, their identity. Uh, but for the mother also to, fi- to to recognize some internalized emotions that they might have themselves for their own healing. Most importantly, like you always say, Dr. Mvulashaka, it's an opportunity to establish strong roots. <laughs> so I think that, that those those are, are the main key points that I would want this this work to to communicate to mother and daughters mm-hmm. during this time. So what are your recommendations to students starting out in research? and specifically researching mother-daughter relationships and also the writing process uh, based on your experience? I know that's a whole lot of questions. Okay. So um, starting in research, a strong mentor. I think it's okay. We're going to be fearful, right? Because it just seems like a monumental experience that we have to try and navigate. And I think a strong mentor, Dr. Mulshaka, you know, I always say it, I'm forever grateful to you. I'm a, I'm a 48-year-old woman. When I met you, I was 45. <laughs> um, and I still was fearful. I still was fearful. And I was learning, you know, and, 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 you know, I always say what's today is not tomorrow, right? I just went in wanting to be a therapist. So I knew I had to get my bachelor's. I knew I had to get my master's so I can get licensed. And then I met you and... You said Dr. Wilson, and now I'm going for my PhD, <laughs> and you know things change, but not because you were telling me they needed to change, but because you saw in me what I was unable to see in myself, and I think that that's what a strong mentor does. Mm-hmm. They see in you what we can't see in ourselves. They see in us what we can't see in ourselves, and so helping knowing that. Again, it's almost like a mother-daughter relationship, right? <laughs> um, but it could be, you know, it could be a professor or a male professor. It doesn't matter. It's someone that believes in you, that can can give you enough information for you to make your own decisions based on what, where and what you feel you want to go and do. But also someone that's going to keep it real with you and is going to keep you accountable and, and is not going to allow the fear to just overtake this this experience because it can really be fearful and just seem like a huge thing that you can never accomplish. So that was one question. You also asked me about researching mother-daughter relationships. I think it's important to understand, um, as we've learned through hair combing activities, that there's different ways to bond. There's different ways to bond, and sometimes we don't re- we, we're living them every day, and we don't realize that there these tasks are actually things that can be um, used as opportunities. There are actually opportunities, maybe opportunities to strengthen our daughters. Um, I you know I, I have a friend who had a young girl at 14, and her daughter was when I met her her daughter was turning 14 and I can't couldn't you know in my head I was saying wow she's so well-rounded the daughter's so well-rounded you know and how did a 14 year old you know how and then I thought okay you know mothers back in the days are also very young but in this time and age and because at 14 she really she's done ever since she was born she's tried to really bond with her and really 
figure out ways to put her in social circles that can strengthen her. And uh, in, in research, I think we have a responsibility to identify what those opportunities are. So continuous you know, researching, continuous exploration, continuous observation of our culture, because what what may be out there in the in the research right now and the data may not apply. Well, actually, does not apply in big parts to what we experience, right? And so, to really feel that we have a responsibility as researchers, as you know, um, African Americans, as Latinos, as immigrant populations, you know, to continue this research to strengthen all the. Uh, our, our legacy to, to strengthen those that come after us so they understand the different aspects that, that we didn't understand or our parents didn't understand. Hmm. Very well said and interesting. Um, so it sounds like people should really use their unique experiences to explore and research that family dynamic. Absolutely. All right, well... <laughs> I do want to share some closing thoughts that actually comes from our published article. It's clear that the internalized hair stories are a viable source of data for research on African-American mother-daughter relationships. These hair stories reveal how the phenotypic expression of race through hair informs the acceptance and rejection of hair texture, length, and style of African-American women. Additionally, these hair stories reveal the biopsychological and cultural historical dimensions of racial socialization. Hair experiences make a significant contribution to the emotional core of attachments and identity development for African-American women. Ingrid, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you I for having me. I had a blast. Thank you, Dr. Mbulashaka. So I know you're going to be doing upcoming projects. How can listeners get in contact with you to keep up to date with all of your projects? Uh, for sure. You can reach me on Instagram at research for mi gente. That's research number four, mi gente, M-I-G-E-N-T-E, because I have you know, a obligation to honor my lineage. And that's really what I'm hoping to continue to do. Ashe. All right. And then as always, you can follow the latest psychotherapy information through our website, psychotherapy.org and our Instagram handle at psychotherapy. Of course, if you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your family, your friends, and even your mother. <laughs> um, so in closing, let's remember that a path to healthy hair is having strong, strong roots. roots. <laughs>